0: Hi everyone, my name is Ben Wagonar. I'm the missions pastor here at LCF and uh, it's great to be with you all. I feel like the numbers are kind of heavy on this side. So I feel drawn to speak over here for some reason, but I'll make sure you guys get your fair share of attention over here. So um, I was born and raised in Grimsby, Ontario, Canada. Went to school at Graceland, and so that landed me in the Midwest. Married Joelle May, now Joelle Wagoner, which landed me in Liberty. And now I'm in front of you guys. That's the whole story of my life. How about that? (laughs) Okay. Um, Hey, who's ever tried to catch a grasshopper before? Come on. More people than five frogs? Thank you. How about spiders? No, snakes, I hope nobody, that's, you need to leave. (laughs) Okay, when you, this is kind of resurfaced for me in my life. I have a four year old who is uh, infatuated with insects. And so we need to, when we find one, we have to look at it, examine it, identify it and catch it. So when you catch an insect, if the insect is on the edge here, what do you need to do? Anybody? Yes sweep it ooh I, sweep it yes you know i have not had a lot of success with the sweeping method because they kind of see me coming maybe cuz i don't know why but sweeping has not worked well for me for me the kind of get as close as you can with hands cupped and ready to go with one quick action is kind of how we pounce on it okay what is the next thing that you do when you catch an insect after it's in your hands You look at it, and then what happens? It ends up getting out, okay? It sees that little ray of light, and it jumps out, right? Well, today we're going to talk about Psalm 139, and in Psalm 139, there's a picture of God laying his hand upon us, but his hold is firm. And so if you have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, if you have believed that his death and resurrection is enough for your sin then you are his and he has laid his hand upon you and you have an intimate relationship with God. And we're going to look at that in Psalm 139. Let's look at the first six verses. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know, when I sit down and when I stand up, you understand my thoughts from afar. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. You have encircled me, you have placed your hand on me. This wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It is lofty, I am unable to reach it. You are actively and intimately known by the Lord. Let's start with that first word, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's typically not how we type in our culture, right? So why in the world is that in the Bible? So that's the covenant name of God, Yahweh. And scribes didn't want to use the name Yahweh when they scribe or or transcribe the scripture. So they substituted the word Adonai. They didn't want to take the Lord's name in vain when they scribed. So they decided to switch it to Adonai, which is the Hebrew word for Lord. Now in in the old manuscripts, we see Yahweh is in there. So... We kind of compromised in our English translation. We said, well, to distinguish that, instead of capital L, lowercase O-R-D, Lord, Adonai, meaning like Master, Exalted One, now we would do capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D to show this is Yahweh. It's different. And the reason it's different is because Yahweh is the covenant name of God of the Old Testament, meaning that that is the God that pursued the Israelites that drew them out from Egypt and established them as his people. And so when David says, Lord, all caps, he's saying this covenant God that rescued the Israelites, this God of the universe that made a way for us to belong to him. And now he says, this God, this God searches me. This is not a plural word like, oh yeah, God searches everybody in the world right? It's no, he searches me. It is personal. It's just like Psalm 23, which is, can somebody say the first line in Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd. It's the same capital L-O-R-D. Yahweh is my shepherd. That's a pretty bold statement to say the uncreated God of the universe, infinite, all-powerful, all-wise, omnipresent, the one who created and sustained the world, You're going to claim that he's your shepherd? Like, who are you, David? You're going to say that he has searched you and known you? Who are you? And yet David with boldness says, Lord, you have searched me and known me. There is this confidence in him, this belief that he has this relationship with Yahweh. Now let's unpack that in the next two verses. What does it mean for God to search you and know you? It means he knows David's actions. He knows your actions. You're sitting and you're rising, accompanying or encompassing all of your daily activities. It involves knowing all the daily activities and your nightly sleeping habits. Like when you have a scary dream and you go to your parents' room because you're scared. Okay, you guys don't do that. That's okay. There's really no laughs. You guys can laugh at that stuff. It's totally fine. Okay? He knows everything. So we're encompassing all that you do. He encompasses all of your schedule. He knows all that. He searched you. He knows you. His eyes are on you. And it says, before there's a word on my tongue, you know about it all, Lord. Lord. The Bible says that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouse speaks. So not only does he know all about the intricate details of your life, when you wake up, when you go to bed, what you do, but he knows why you do it. He knows your motivations. He knows all the traffic in your heart. He knows all your thoughts. He knows all your desires. He knows all your dreams. Because when we speak, we're uttering that which is in our heart, the Bible says. So even before there's a word on my tongue, you know it, Lord, Lord. Meaning, wow, he knows like that depth of me, like that, the motivation behind the motivation behind the motivation. If I'm gonna sit down and analyze myself, that's what God knows. Wow, that's David's confidence before there's a word. Now, this knowledge is not a passive knowledge. It's not like God's like, oh yeah, hey, I, I know that about you. You know, I kind of looked on your Instagram. I followed you on Facebook, Twitter. Like, I I just kind of know that stuff, right? This is an active pursuing God. Verse five says, you have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. The Hebrew word for encircled is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to talk about an army besieging a city. This is God coming in just like, My son, Bo, would come upon an insect and say, mine. Except God doesn't squish you, so that's good, right? Yeah. God calls you his, he encircles you, and then he lays his hand on you, which is used in the positive sense in this context. In the Old Testament, the hand of God is what brings deliverance, what brings salvation, what brings provision. And so now we have God saying, you are mine. And he lays his hand in the sense that he knows what you need most and he brings that into your life. And this is David's boast. This is David's confidence. The Lord doesn't do anything because he owes someone something. So this knowledge, this searching and knowing, this encircling is not because God has to. It's because God wants to. It's not because you're impressive that God's like, oh yeah, I, I should get to know Keith because he's a really cool guy. And if I got in Keith's social circle, like I would look pretty good. That's not God. Romans 11 says, what have you given to God that he would repay you? God owes you nothing. In fact, it's the opposite. You have fallen far short. You are far unworthy of his glory, Paul would say. And yet, God pursues. This is because God wants you. God desires you. And so David is left, not trying to qualify himself. God, search me and know me because I'm the king. That would be a good reason. I'm the king of Israel. God should search me and know me. God should always be with me because I'm the king. David is merely stating fact this is my relationship with Yahweh. This is that kind of faith confidence that He has. Does God's infinite knowledge of you bring you comfort or does it bring you fear? And why? Something for you to discuss with your D group leaders later. This isn't just about a relational knowledge of you, this is also about experiencing the presence of God. So let's read verses 7 through 12. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I live at the eastern horizon or settle at the western limits, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. You cannot hide or run away from the Lord. David transitions in verse seven to talk about the presence of the Lord in his life. God's everywhere. He's in the heavens, he's in the earth, he's in the East, he's in the West and darkness cannot keep out his gaze. And this is important for us to understand because we can often think, well, God's not there if fill in the blank, but he is. God is always there when you, Go to bed and go to sleep, God's there. When you wake up, God's there. When you're in class, God's there. When you're at a sporting event, God's there. When you're on that date, God's there. When you're on that date that didn't go so well, God was there too. God is there always. He's everywhere. And David said, I cannot flee away from him. If you travel, God's there. If you stay, God's there. Where can you go? If you go to that party, God's there too. If you go to that church youth group, God's there too. If everybody's getting along well in your family, God's there. If your family's a disaster, God's there. This is the beauty of who God is. And this is going to comfort David because it's not just that his presence is there, but he says that you have laid your right hand on me. Your right hand will lay hold of me. The right hand of God is God's hand of strength and deliverance. So for David, it's not just that God's there, but he but God's right hand lays hold of him so that in that moment, he knows that God is working things out. And it's not just like working things out, like, oh yeah, God's kind of doing something. Yeah, maybe things will turn out okay. No, Paul says he works all things out for good, even in the midst of suffering. So I got to ask, can I ever be hidden from God or will God forget me? And here is an important, powerful question. Has God forgotten you? We can ask this when we go through disappointment, we didn't make the sports team, we didn't get the grade, we didn't get the date that we wanted. Has God forgotten you? Your parents fight all the time, has God forgotten you? You don't get along with your dad, has God forgotten you? You had this hope and dream in your heart that has not happened. In fact, maybe the opposite happened. Has God forgotten you? You hoped to get into that school and you didn't. Has God forgotten you? It is in the midst of suffering, of disappointment, of hurt, of trial, of difficulty that we ask that question, has God forgotten me? That is the, the natural question that surfaces in our hearts. That pain triggers for us this look to God of where are you? Isaiah 49, verse 14 through 15 says, Zion has said, the Lord has forsaken me and the Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. It is hard for us to agree in our minds when we have a solid, what we feel like is a solid understanding of this is what would be good in my life, okay? If I could date that girl, that would be what is good. We, we set our hearts to that. If I didn't have this problem in my life, that would be my good. We set our 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 confidence that if that was changed, if that was different, if I had that, if I scored that winning goal, things would be good. And when that doesn't happen, and we ask that question, God, have you forgotten me? What we need most in that moment is for God to say, I haven't for where can you go from his presence or where can you flee from his spirit? The following line that we have in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 14 and 15, in verse 16, it says this, "'Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands.'" The greatest faith builder in our life is not that our circumstances change or that dream or hope is or it comes to fruition but it's looking upon Jesus and saying no actually that's the definition of my good that God thought of me when he was on the cross so that in his in his palms those nail holes in his hands and that blood shed was for me so I can have confidence that he is with me and that he's working all things out for good that's what bolter, bolsters my confidence. That's what bolsters my faith in those moments. I was uh, I worked at a Bible school in Uganda in 2013. And about four months in, I was going through culture shock, which culture shock is um, like someone, we they gave this example at the middle school service, but somebody taking your phone and messing with it. Okay, you have like, your apps in a certain order, you have your contacts, but somebody comes in and like messes with everything. So when you try to use your phone, you can't use it. Like it's not working properly. Why did they mess with this? Maybe you have a younger sibling that has done that or I don't know what. Culture shock is like that. You have your way of doing things and they do not do it that way. And it's so annoying and you hate everything about that culture and it really requires some processing. So I got to meet some missionaries at that time in Uganda. They lived about two and a half hours away, and they helped me to process a little bit of this culture shock. So I got to know them pretty well. About four months after I had met them, um, they, were, they took a trip uh, down to Kampala, which is the capital city, and they had just had a baby. She was uh, one month old. So they left their three other kiddos at home. They took the trip. They had to go to Kampala for supplies, and on the way back, uh, it was in Uganda, night is night. I mean, there's not street lights. It is pitch black, and everybody drives with their brighties on. I don't know why. That was one of the culture shock things of like, this is not how you do it. Okay, but everybody drives with their brighties on. So, anyways, Will was driving in Uganda. You uh, drive on the left hand side, so the steering wheel's on the right. So Will was driving. Etta was beside him. And their daughter, Lydia, was one month old, was in Etta's arms. And she was nursing at the time because they was, you know, from Kampala, probably a four and a half hour drive. That's not safe to do, but that's what they were doing, and it was late at night. So they're driving. They come to a hill, and at the crest of the hill, a car comes over the hill, has its brighties on, blinds will for, you know, a fraction of a second, but it was just enough for him to not see that there was a parked semi truck on the road. As he crested the hill, he quick swerved after that car passed but he didn't swerve in time. And so it caught that left side of the vehicle where Etta was and it crushed in the side. Will was bleeding and had a broken arm. Etta was crushed in and the baby was crushed against Etta. And somehow by God's miraculous grace, typically, if something like that happens, there's a, there can be bandits that are, I know it sounds weird, bandits, but there can be thieves that are, that are hunkered down wherever. And when car crashes happen, they can swarm in and steal, they'll kill you and they'll steal all your stuff. Somehow somebody came to that moment, found out who it was, where they lived, and things started to get, um, they started to get some help. The baby ended up dying in Uganda. Edda had to have multiple surgeries. Will had to have surgery there. They went home from Uganda back to the States. They found out that all their surgeries needed to be redone because the healthcare in Uganda is absolutely atrocious. And so all this while, uh, Will is processing the grief of losing his one-month-old baby, of his wife being in traction, that she had multiple, multiple broken bones, Um, and he's a missionary giving his life to the Lord. And where is God in all this? And they took probably about nine months at home to do physical recovery, to redo their surgeries. And about, I think at about six months in, they started to go to counseling and process this. And he asked the Lord, God, where were you in this moment? And what happened immediately after the impact, Will got out and he had a he had a broken arm and his arm was gashed open, but Edda was pinned in and his, uh, and the baby was pinned against Edda. So he got the baby out and the baby was still alive, but dying. And so he's holding his dying baby. His wife is pinned in there. They got a truck to try to pull the uh, van apart enough to get his wife out. And as he's processing with the Lord, God, where were you in this? Jesus gives him a picture. And Jesus showed him that he was standing beside Will, singing songs of peace over him in that moment. That doesn't make his baby come back alive, it doesn't fix all the circumstances but it gives that heart it gives his heart grace to know where can i flee from your presence in uganda in a car crash when my baby dies you're there and that is what this psalm is pointing to is the confidence of david to say even darkness cannot hide me god you are working this out for good though this disappointment is there and i'm angry about it god encounter my heart that you are always with me and you have not forgotten me, that you see me, that you know me, that you care about me, that this struggle is real, but God, you're with me. That is what this psalm is doing for David. That is what he's writing in this moment. My computer went black and uh, there we go, sorry. Sorry. It takes God's word to wash us because we need a different perspective. Let's read verses 13 through 18. For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I've been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. God, how precious your thoughts are to me. How vast is their sum. If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake up, I am still with you. Brothers and sisters, you are fearfully and wonderfully made by the Lord. Do you believe this? often we can approach scripture and we can hear kind of Christianese language like, hey, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. We get that Hallmark card for our birthday. It says, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. And you're like, okay, I don't know what that means. It's kind of weird, but cool. We need to allow this word to sink into our spirits. This is transformative for us because it will shift how you look in the mirror tomorrow. When it says that God created you, knit you together, that you've been remarkably and wondrously made, do you believe that? This proves his intentionality with you that you are not an accident, that you are who you are by God's purpose and plan, that you have inherent worth because God made you And that's like a really foreign concept to us, right? We live in a culture that's comparative. We compare athletes, we compare actors and actresses. We we just, we constantly compare. We compare ourselves to other students. We have grades that compare. It's just, it's nothing but a measurement culture of how you rate compared to somebody else, right? Everything's a competition. That's just how our world works. And yet this says otherwise. That there is no other reason for you to have worth, but God created you that you're fearfully and wonderfully made. So when I look in the mirror, man, I really want to see something that I can measure. And yet God says, just look and know that your worth and value is because God was very particular in who you are and how he made you, that he made you with intent and with care and with delight. It says in Revelation, worthy are you, O Lord, because you created all all things and by your will, they existed and have their being. And we think of God's will of like, oh yes, this cold doctrine of God's will but God's will is his desire. You were created because God desired you to exist. So when you wake up in the morning, God's like, yeah, I made him. I made her. Isn't that awesome? That's so different from how we think about self-worth. You know, what's interesting when... Uh, when you get sports paraphernalia, how an autograph changes the worth of something. Isn't that weird? Like Mahomes signs something and now it's worth like $100,000. Like how is that possible? That like, what what is that? That, okay, you met him and those little squiggly marks make that worth 100,000? It's because of who he is that makes that worth that much. Like the dude's a rock star, right? So his autograph on something, somebody that is that valuable puts that autograph on that. That's what makes it valuable. If I put my little squiggly lines on something, it means nothing. And yet God, Yahweh, the creator of the ends of the earth who made the stars and the planets, who made the roly polies. We call them potato bugs in Canada, by the way. He made those. He sustains the world. He made you, and you have his signature on you. And so now you have a choice. You can agree with that, or you can try to really find something comparative in the world for you to find value in. And don't think that, like, okay, maybe in high school that's that's maybe a little bit harder. I'm 38 years old and I struggle with insecurity. I struggle with performance. I struggle with measurement. I struggle with that. and yet the Word of God is able to take that and transform me so that each day I gain a greater confidence that it's not based upon, what I do or what I look like, but upon God creating me. And there's freedom in that. I want that freedom. I don't want to be insecure. I don't want to be constantly measuring myself. I want the freedom of being secure in the Lord. Do you believe this about other people? What happens in our insecurity is we try to bolster ourselves up by putting other people down. And so we can look upon other people who are different and in our minds we're, we're thinking they're less than because they look like this or they can't do this. I mean, it's the clearest thing of that is sports, right? If you have a junior varsity player and a varsity player and you're going to go, I don't know, play a game, nobody picks a junior varsity player. We, we instill value on the person that is better at something. It's just, it's it's part of our culture. It's so much ingrained. And yet the word sets us free to be able to look at somebody and say, their infinite value to God is because God created them. And so my judgments that I make of that guy is worth more than that guy. That guy is cooler than that guy. Now it starts to be demolished and I can look at people and say, wow, fearfully and wonderfully made, fearfully and wonderfully made. I worked at a... uh, at a pediatric clinic. Um, And we had some people come in to the clinic that, I mean, rough lives. Like it's, it's the kind of rough life that they go through the clinic and I would scribe with the doctor. So I would go into the room with the doctor, I would scribe the visit. And it's the kind of rough life where I wouldn't even know who it was that went through, but you smell that, walk through in the office like you come out of the patients that we were seeing and it's like holy smokes like who just went through here like that kind of rough life and my quick judgment is like man those slobs seriously like you can't bathe your kids my quick judgments are just to put them down because I could do better And I have no idea of their life or their circumstances or how they were raised. I have no idea. And yet I'm like, I'm just going to point that judgment out. And yet I come to the word of God and I think, wow, Lord, like when you look at them, you say fearfully and wonderfully made. Oh man, that's a shift. That's freedom that God wants for us. Do you look at people in that lens? Lastly, have you, well, not lastly, in this point, have you given thanks to God for creating you? David says that. He says, I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. I don't do that. Instead, I try to think about like, how am I doing? How do I look? How am I doing as a missions pastor? How am I doing as a husband, as a father? Am I getting in shape to play soccer so I can be better than the 75-year-old guy that I'm going to play against on Sunday? Like, or can I praise God and say, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made and just soak in that glory? Have you given thanks to God for making you fearfully and wonderfully? This will bring freedom to you. And you'll find, I guarantee it, you spend time doing this. You're gonna struggle doing this because however old you are, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, for all those years, you have been in a culture that has said otherwise, that your worth is based off of other things and it's a struggle. And this is the renewal of the mind that God gives you in Christ Jesus to be able to transform how you think. And beloved, this is gonna be freedom for you. It is gonna be freedom for you. Make this a discipline. Write this on your mirror. Write this in your locker. Write this in your notebook. Meditate upon this during the day because the world will bombard you with otherwise. The social circles in high school will tell you differently. Your friends that you surround yourself with, I guarantee you that there are some who will mock and make fun of other people. And you might too. In Christ Jesus, there is freedom for you to take this word and plant it in your heart. We don't need to look even down upon people that mock others. We can love them too. Beloved, let this sink in deeply. Oh man, I'm gonna do that this week. This is good stuff. Okay, not getting a lot of feedback. That's all right, we're gonna move on. Okay, last section. God, if only you would kill the wicked, you bloodthirsty men stay away from me, who invoke you deceitfully. Your enemies swear by you falsely. Lord, don't I hate those who hate you and detest those who rebel against you. I hate them with extreme hatred. I consider them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Okay, David, it's a bit of an overreaction there. Okay, we just went from, Lord, you've searched me and know me. Lord, where can I go from your presence? God, you've knit me together in my mother's womb. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Kill the wicked! Okay, okay, how did we land here, David? Like, this is intense language. This is what we call imprecatory scripture. It's really hard to deal with because it's like, like you went from like mushy stuff to like, oh yeah, I'm going to write this on my mirror, you know, to like, holy moly, like this is intense. So what's going on here? We need to think about it in light of the Old Testament. So when we look at the book of Joshua, when Joshua goes on his campaign through the promised land, Joshua leads the armies of Israel. And that's not a genocidal moment. That is Yahweh being exalted above all other gods. So it's Yahweh and God's people triumphing over all other gods. So when they fight against the Philistines, it's not the Israelites killing the Philistines. It's Yahweh destroying Dagon, their God. And there was such a close uh, connect between the people and the God that they're seen as one. So we see a physical manifestation of the kingdom of God coming. When we look to the book of Matthew, Jesus, whose Hebrew name is Joshua, we see now the building of the kingdom of God in a spiritual sense. So now Jesus will say, well, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. It's kind of this crazy shift from this physical reality of the building of the kingdom to now the spiritual reality of the identification of the enemies of God being sin, Satan, and sickness. So at the end of Matthew in Matthew 28, when Jesus says, and lo, I'm with you always, that's the same repeated phrase that God gives to Joshua and I am with you always. We see this transference of this physical battle of the kingdom of God coming in the Old Testament to now this spiritual reality that will manifest itself physically, but against a spiritual enemy. And so when we look back to David saying this, like, that's intense. David is saying, God, build your kingdom. We can summarize this by David's heart saying, and God, build your kingdom. Be exalted over all evil and wickedness. That's the heart of David. And so our takeaway from this is submit yourself to the king and build his kingdom. This isn't you pointing the finger at so-and-so or so-and-so because they fall far short of a biblical standard, right? Because David even says, he says, search me. Search me and see if there's any wicked way. This is David coming into agreement that God's rule is the best. It's the best thing for humanity. So we have this process of God, you know me, you've searched me. Yahweh, I belong to you. I can't flee from you. I know that you have made me, created me, sustained me. You think about me. And now my response is, I want to love you wholeheartedly. That's David's response. I want you exalted in your rightful place. I want my response to be, God, I love you back. Because I know that's what you ultimately want. I want to love you back. So search me and see if there's any wicked way in me because I want my heart, I want my heart to want you. I want my heart to love you. I know that's where it starts. And so that's David's David's response at the end. Brothers and sisters, Take this Psalm and in confidence because of what Jesus has done for you, own it. Take this as who you are and who you are with the God of the universe. This is what you get to think about. This is what you get to experience in him. This is the response that is gonna drive from your heart by his grace. And so we get to take this word and we get to meditate on it week after week, year after year and think to ourselves, this is who I am. And we need the word to wash our hearts because it's gonna shift. It's gonna shift how you think about yourself. It's gonna shift how you think about other people. It's gonna shift how you walk through your day to day because God is always with you. That's what it does. Theology always shifts things. Let me pray for you guys. God, thank you for your word. God, I need it. We need it. How different it is than our culture. And so I ask that you would pour out your spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of you, that we would know the hope of our calling what is the glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the greatness of your power toward us who believe. Father, plant this word on our hearts day by day that we would agree with it, that we would enjoy it, that we would enjoy you as you enjoy us, that we would know you as you know us. Father, I thank you for all those gathered here and I ask that you would bless them I thank you for their lives. I thank you that they are fearfully and wonderfully made. They are intricately made, that you know them. And so I ask that you would encounter them this week mightily through this word. Bless them in Jesus' name, amen.